You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me to learn our faith together and to have a few, um, I want to say laughs. It's, uh, I do laugh a great deal when I listen to Bishop Sheen. Uh, he has a humor that is uh, just uh, very inviting. And uh, today he's going to um, make light of two um, topics that I think will resonate well in your soul. He's going to be talking about hell. <laughs> and, you know, whenever someone talks about hell, you know, you, the world would like to tell you that hell doesn't exist, that it's a figment of your imagination. It's a, an old wives' tale created by the church to control people. Uh, but uh, hell is real. And uh, our Lord spoke of hell in sacred scripture many, 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 many times. And so Bishop Sheen is going to give us a catechism lesson today on hell. But he's also going to humor us with his television series, Life is Worth Living, where he gave a, a reflection entitled, Nice People, Awful People. And I think right away we know, oh, there's a bunch of nice people, and boy, there's a lot of awful people. And so he spoke about that issue back in the 1950s. And so uh, we're going to uh, replay that broadcast for you today. But before we get to these reflections, let us uh, begin our time with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection now, entitled, Nice People, Awful People, by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, we're always very happy to hear from mothers about their children and their reactions of children to our program. One story came to us this week from Denver that this child, under four years of age, was a bit impatient about being served his breakfast, and uh, he was banging his spoon on his bowl, demanding service. The mother was occupied and unable to do it. Finally, he picked up the bowl, pulled it over his head, and says, Look, Mom, Bishop Sheen. <laughs> Now, 
We will probably get offers from a serial company after that story, uh, but they can completely forget about it because it's nullified by another story which came to us from another boy under four from St. Paul, Minnesota. It seems as this particular boy was looking at the television on Tuesday evening, and finally we came on, and he shouted out, uh, Mom, here's Admiral Sheen. <laughs> well, I suppose we are on airwaves, and it was not so wrong. This story is a story that you perhaps have already heard, but I am retelling it in order to illustrate the talk of this evening. It is apropos of an egotist who went to see his physician. He complained of pains in his head. And the doctor said to him, You feel a pressing pain here in the forehead? Yes, said the patient. And then a uh, rather throbbing pain in the back of the head? Yes. And then piercing pains here at the side? Yes. The doctor said, Your halo's on too tight. <laughs> The point is that almost everybody today believes that he has a halo. If it doesn't come from virtue, at least it comes from shampoo. <laughs> everybody thinks they're an angel. There's only one angel on this program, and that's my angel. It's not I. Mark Twain once said, whenever I hear of the number of really disagreeable people whom I am told go to a better world, I'm thinking of changing the way I live. <laughs> that brings up those who believe they have halos. Oh, yes, I must tell you a story about this. A father brought home his hat one night, and he said to his wife, I picked up the wrong hat in a restaurant. And his son looked at it, saw J.M.J., and he says, that's Bishop Sheen's hat. <laughs> We're going to make a distinction tonight between nice people and awful people. The nice people always think they are good. The awful people know they are not. The nice people never do wrong. Never break a commandment. Never guilty of any moral infraction. If they do anything that we would call wrong, they have various ways of explaining it away. They say, well, it's due to economic circumstances. Some will say, I was born too rich. And others... I was born too poor. Someone else will say, and I was born with just enough. And the result is that they suffer from some kind of aberration, but never moral. Then others have the psychological complex. And uh, they explain it away in Freudian terms. And they say, well, I have an Oedipus complex, or an Electra complex, father complex, a mother complex. Now, the awful people, on the contrary... They've never been rich enough to be psychoanalyzed. They just think they're plain bad. <laughs> They've never been introduced to their subconsciousness. 
And they interpret everything they do generally in terms of an infraction of a commandment. Now, nice people will be, for example, alcoholics. The awful people are drunkards. Sometimes just plain bums. <laughs> the alcoholics never do anything wrong. They just have a disease. Uh, the drunkards and the bums, on the contrary, they say, oh, I'm a no good. They're fighting against passion, against weaknesses. and they do anything good, they're like Philip Neary. Say, well, it was the grace of God. If they avoid anything evil, they say, as he did, when he saw a man to his death in the scaffold, well, except for the grace of God, there goes Philip Neary. And when these people, the nice people, do anything wrong, they always say, um, how stupid I was. Or what a fool I was. And these people always say, what a sinner I am. How wretched I am. And the, the nice people always are convention. Their morality is always the accepted morality of society at any given moment. If, for example, it is customary for society to have many divorces, well, they say, well, divorces are right. The awful people, on the contrary, never accept social morality. They do something wrong, they admit it. The result is that the, the nice people are always appealing to what everybody is doing. The awful people are generally below that level. The nice people think they're going straight because they're traveling in the best circles. And the awful people, their vices are rather open. Their sins are gross. Kind of a flagrant violation of law. There's a crudity. They lack that refinement that the very nice people have. And so we'll hear of a person who has broken almost every commandment, and it'll be said of her or him, but she's so nice, and he's so nice. And then these poor drunkards over here, oh, they're such awful bums. They're low. It's a peculiar thing about society that it has no place for those who are either too bad or too good. That is why on the hill of Calvary, we have our blessed Lord on the cross in the middle of two thieves. The two thieves were too bad for conventional morality. And our blessed Lord was too good. All that I have said we could summarize in a few words. The nice people are very often the people who are not found out. And those awful people are the people that have been found out. We'll tell you a story about some nice people and awful people. 
It happened after our blessed Lord had spent a night in prayer in the Garden of Olives, and he came to the temple. He came to the temple early in the morning, and inasmuch as it was a great feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles, and tens of thousands of people had gathered in the city, it was only natural, possibly, that there should be one or the other gross violation of morality. In any case, the very nice people, the scribes and the Pharisees, found a woman who had been guilty of committing adultery. And they dragged her into the temple. And they thrust her before our blessed Lord. She pulled the veil about her face to hide herself from her unabashed accuser. And they brought her to the attention of our Savior. Not just because they were concerned about protecting the laws of morality, but because they wanted to catch him and ensnare him in his speech. They tried to put him into a dilemma. They said, the law of Moses commands that this woman be stoned to death. What sayest thou? Now, it was true that the law of Moses did order the stoning of such a woman find suggestions of it in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But that law was now a dead letter. Their intention in bringing it up was this. They were practically saying to our Savior, you say you come from God, that you are the Son of God? Well, the law of Moses comes from God. And if you come from God and the law of Moses comes from God, then order this woman's town. Put her to death. That was only half the dilemma. For some decades, ever since the Romans had become master of that country, only the Romans had power over life. Therefore, the right to put anyone to death. So if he put that woman to death, they would report him to the procurator. They would condemn him of violating a law, a law against Caesar. So he was caught. He stoned the woman in order to put to death he was guilty of treason against Caesar. If he released the woman, he was guilty of heresy against Moses. And then the dilemma deepened, too, because they knew that he had been priding himself on his mercy and the fact that he came to forgive sins. So they were practically saying to him, 
If you condemn this woman, you're not merciful. If you do not condemn her, you're not just. In answer to their questions and their dilemma, our blessed Lord leaned forward. There was some dust on the temple floor. And he wrote. It was the only time in his life he ever wrote. What did he write? We know that he leaned over twice. He scribbled something in the dust. We do not know what he wrote. Permit me to guess. It is only a guess. Your guess is just as good as mine. I think that the first time that he leaned over, he wrote in the dust the sins of the woman. And a gentle breeze seemed to come up so suddenly. Erase the writing. And as he wrote, they persisted in their question, What sayest thou about the law of Moses? And then he looked up at them, and he gave his answer. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He was not abrogating the law of Moses. He was asking for a new jury. He was not doing away with the Mosaic dispensation he was summoning new executioners. He was saying only the innocent have a right to condemn. And he, innocence itself, will not condemn her because he's going to die one day for her sin. When those nice people heard that, they looked to one another to see if anyone would be brave enough to say, he was not guilty of any sin. And then I think our Lord leaned over again and wrote. And as he began to write, they left one by one, beginning with the eldest. And I can picture about three of them remaining. And our blessed Lord looked up at one of them. With one of those deep, penetrating looks that anticipate judgment. And then he leaned over, and he wrote in the dust, this time where there was no wind to blow the writing away. He wrote, thief. And he dropped his stone. 
And then he looked at the second. And reading his soul as he had read Simon's soul at dinner. He leaned over and wrote in the dust for the second time the word. Murderer. And he dropped his stone. There was only one left. He was the youngest of all. And the boldest. One of that group, when they came with stones, took one from his neighbor's hand, weighed it in his own to see which was the heavier one, give back the lighter one to the woman in order that he might throw the heavier one at the woman, giving the lighter one to his neighbor. Then our Lord looked into his soul and how he read it. He wrote for the third time the word. Adulterer. He dropped his stone quickly and fled. There were left only two. Miseria and Misericordia. Misery, mercy, pitiableness, and pity. He said to her, Woman, it was the title that he had given to his mother at Cana. He would address her in the same way from the cross. Woman, where are they who accuse thee? She said, they are not here, my Lord. He said, then neither will I accuse thee. Go, sin no more. He was not making light of it. The reason he was not making light of it was because he would die for that sin. The result was that those who came were very, very nice and were convicted of their sins left him without receiving pardon and absolution. And those awful people came to him. They were convicted of their sin, too, like that woman. And she stayed for pardon and absolution. No wonder they accused our Lord always of associating with those awful people for whom he came to die. What a pity that those Pharisees knew nothing about the Oedipus complex. Then they could have said they were not guilty. What surprises there will be on the last day when the awful people are coming to the kingdom of heaven. And if we get there, we're going to be surprised, first of all, because we're going to see a number of people there whom we never expected. And we'll say, how did he get in? 
Glory be to God, look at her. <laughs> and then we're also going to be surprised to find the number of people whom we expected to be there. Those nice people may not be there at all. But those surprises are mild. The third surprise will be the greatest of all. And that surprise is that we are there. One of the most unpopular ways in the world of making money is by working. <laughs> I wonder if I can think up anything about work for next week. If I can, we'll talk on it. Bye now. God love you. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-357. 4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for this hour of reflection here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. And I want to thank you for joining me, and uh, we are learning uh, these lessons together. And I thank everyone for the emails that I've received over the year. And, um, you know, it's we're on lesson number uh, 47 in the Catechism uh, series today. And, uh, yeah, we've been together for 40 seven classes. And I do receive emails, and it's nice to hear your words of encouragement and to know that someone is listening. And uh, you can always uh, find me, of course. Uh, my email is simply bishopfultonjsheen at gmail.com. So it's just, again, bishopfultonjsheen at gmail.com. Or you can find me on my website at uh, bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, so, again, uh, thank you again for all your words of encouragement. And so now we're going to have Bishop Sheen give us a reflection on hell. And, and so I don't have to give a disclaimer or a, a little footnote to warn you or to cover everyone's ears. It's a great sobering conversation that uh, we will hear. And so it's nice to uh, hear it, of course, from one of the greatest catechists uh, the world has ever known. 
uh, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. And uh, again, bishops are here to teach and instruct the faith. So what better way to receive it through uh, the uh, good hands of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. In this lesson, we are going to give you hell. I mean the subject of hell. Few today believe in either the devil or in hell. Why do they not believe in the devil when there are so many devilish things about? The communists have tried to convince us that there is no God. Actually, they have not convinced us of that. But they have convinced us that there is a devil. We cannot explain all the evil in the world today. If we are going to deny the evil one. And that was the kind of question that Trench proposed in a very interesting little poem. Men don't believe in a devil now as their fathers used to do. They forced the door of the broadest creed to let his majesty through. There isn't a print of his cloven foot or a fiery dart from his bow to be found in earth or air today, for the world has voted so. But who is mixing the fatal draft that palsies heart and brain? and loads the earth of each passing year with ten hundred thousand slain. Who blights the bloom of the land today with the fiery breath of hell? If the devil isn't and never was, won't somebody rise and tell? Who dogs the steps of the toiling saint and digs the pit for his feet? Who sows the tares in the field of time wherever God sows his wheat? The devil is voted not to be, and of course the thing is true, but who is doing the kind of work the devil alone should do? We are told he does not go about as a roaring lion now. But whom shall we hold responsible for the everlasting row to be heard in home, in church and state, to the earth's remotest bound, if the devil, by a unanimous vote, is nowhere to be found? Won't somebody step to the front forthwith and make his bow and show how the frauds and the crimes of the day spring up. For surely we want to know. The devil was fairly voted out, and of course the devil is God. But simple people would like to know who carries his business on.
And just as they deny the devil, naturally, they deny hell. Because they deny the justice of God, because they deny the existence of guilt and of sin. The basic reason why so many moderns disbelieve in hell is because they disbelieve in freedom and responsibility. The existence of hell is one of the strongest arguments in the world for the reality of freedom. God allows us free choice and he allows us to have our choice through eternity. To disbelieve in hell is to assert that the consequences of good and bad acts are not indifferent. It does make a tremendous amount of difference whether you eat TNT or drink tea. And it makes a greater difference if your soul drinks virtue or vice. It is just as difficult to make a free nation without judges and prisons as it is to make a free world without judgment and hell. No state constitution could exist for six months on the basis of that liberal Christianity which denies that Christ meant what he said when he said, Depart from ye, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Have you ever noticed that saints fear hell but never deny it? And that great sinners deny hell, they do not fear it, at least for the moment. The devil is never so strong as when he gets a man to deny there is a devil. The modern man who's not living according to his conscience wants a religion without a cross, a Christ without a Calvary, a kingdom without justice, and in his church, a soft dean who never mentions hell to ears polite. And that is modern Christianity. Why is it that we will praise men for making decisions as to whether they will invest in this farm or in that industry, and at the same time refuse to give them credit to decide whether they will go to heaven or hell for all eternity. Just suppose there was no heavenly judge. Suppose there was no heavenly ledger which recorded our deeds and our sins. Suppose we had no conscience to divulge right and wrong, no memory to record our crimes and our sins, and suppose there were no formal sentence of a judge, would there not be still left within us something pointing to a destiny according to the way we lived? I mean our passions, dreads, melancholies, fears. Here is a secret world which burns inside. It comes out in curious ways. Why is there so much mental distress if there's not already a hell within people? Seeds that are buried seek light. Trees in a dense forest mount to absorb the light. 
Shells in sea creep to the shore. A piece of glass in the body works its way out. Murder returns to the scene of his crime, for murder will out. All these unholy deeds are poured out to a psychoanalyst. And along with them all the woes and worries and wounds that are troubling them on the inside. If the stomach cannot keep poison food in it, shall not the poison mind vomit the filth that is already in it? And thus, even though they deny God and judgment, they are attesting to it by the effects of their own lives. Their burdened conscience cannot escape reaping a judgment on its own excesses and torturing itself with its own inner hell. Those who have denied the fruit of love see, as it were, the children at window panes looking in. Denied wombs and bosoms. And then there is all of the distractions and worries, nights and fears of those who are conscious of their own sin. Or as a poet has put it, even an atheist is half afraid in the dark. All those in this world who are in the state of grace have within themselves the seed of glory. And so those who are in the state of mortal sin, even though they deny God, have within themselves the seed of hell. Hell begins here. So does heaven. But heaven does not end here. Neither does hell. Need only read modern literature to see how hell has moved in the inside as people have denied it on the outside. It has become even more real than it was before. Our blessed Lord spoke 15 times of hell. 11 times he mentioned eternal fire. Thirty times in the New Testament, eternal fire is mentioned. There's no doubt about what our blessed Lord said. For example, fear ye not them that kill the body and are not able to kill the soul. but rather fear him that can destroy body and soul into hell. And again our Lord said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you serpents, generations of vipers, how will you flee the wrath of hell? 
our blessed Lord often described it as the place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not extinguished. Ordinarily in this earth, a worm feeds on a decaying body and then dies. On this earth, fire consumes fuel and dies. But our Lord is here speaking the worm that never dies. The fire that never goes out. That worm that never dies is the memory of the past, which is always gnawing the conscience of the impenitent. Our Lord therefore implied two kinds, two elements of destruction. The internal corruption, the worm, and the external consuming force, which is the fire. Maybe these fires are lighted already in this life by that knowing conscience for having rejected God's love. As the poet Yeats put it, whatever flames upon the night, my own resinous heart has fed. And how true that is, as each one is locked in his own uniqueness. And Shelley, who knew well this inner hell, described it. And conscience, that undying serpent, calls her venomous brood to their nocturnal. Well, we may ask, why should God not warn us? What good would another warning do? That was what the rich man asked. Remember in the parable of the rich man and the poor beggar Lazarus? He asked that someone go back to tell his brothers about how much he was suffering in hell. Now, suppose God had granted the request and sent Lazarus back to his five brothers, and they recognized him. You think that would change them? They would probably demand proof that he had really lived and died and visited the region of the departing soul. The point is that judgment and hell are things of faith, not of sight. If the risen Christ is no proof to the senses, much less can our any one risen from the dead be a convincing witness and warning to us. If the resurrection of Christ would not convince those who saw it, the resurrection of a dead man who came from hell will not. If a messenger came back from the rich man, the brothers would probably have tried to kill him, just as the Pharisees tried to kill the Lazarus that our blessed Lord rose from the dead. Why do souls go, then, to hell? They go to hell simply because they refuse to love. 
That's the only reason. The young man loves the young woman. He gives her gifts. He is faithful to her, generous and kind. She is disloyal, takes gifts, is traitorous. And after being deceived a thousand times, he still continues to love her. But eventually, there comes a moment when he will say, All right, I'm through now. Love is finished. And so too, God, the hound of heaven, pursues us all during life, inviting us to his kingdom, bidding us sit down at the banquet of the Eucharist, fortifying us with his grace under sacraments. And we reject, we betray, we are disloyal, we refuse to love, and eventually, when death comes, then our life is sealed, and that kind of love does not come back. Love is eternal, therefore, and so is hell. What is the one thing that love cannot forgive, can never forgive? It is hate. What is the one thing that life can never forgive? It is death. Why? Because death would mean its destruction. What is the one thing that truth can never forgive? Error. And the refusal to love is eternal. What is the punishment like? Well, the punishment is twofold because there's a double character to sin. Whenever we commit a serious sin, there is, first of all, a turning away from God. Secondly, there is a turning to creature. Take, for example, alcoholism. Obviously, a turning away from God, repudiation of the reason that he has given to us. And thirdly, or secondly, rather, there is the turning to creatures, namely to alcohol. It is fitting, therefore, that there be a double punishment. A punishment corresponding to turning away from God, which is the pain of loss, which is the most terrible of all pains, because that is the loss of God himself. And then there is the pain of sense. We are punished by the very creatures which we abuse. Now take, for example, that pain of loss. The soul on this life, enduring it, refuses to love God and no longer responds to his love, just as a magnet cannot have any influence on wood. It never thought of God. In fact, it rejected all of his mercies. But when death comes, the soul cannot do without God any longer. It's thrown back on its need of God. But God is not there. It is just as if one had been playing blind man's buff and he takes off the handkerchief and discovers that he's gone blind. The godless universe it has made persists. And the soul knows that it cannot be happy without life and truth and love. And yet it has eternally rejected those. And that is the pain of loss. That is hell. Now take the pain of sense. An alcoholic abuses alcohol 
And if alcohol were endowed with consciousness, it would say to the drunken man, I was made by God to be used rationally and with sobriety. You have abused me. I therefore will turn against you. Then there comes the slavery, the excesses, and also the hangover, which are punishments, as it were, that came from alcohol itself. Hence, there will be different kinds of punishment in hell. The fiercer the grip pleasures had on a soul in this life, the more fiercely were the fires of torment in eternity. Here are three brief and quick ways of describing hell from our own human experiences. First, hell is the hatred of things you love. The sailor lost on a raft at sea loves water. He was made for it, and water was made for him. He knows that he ought not to drink the water from the sea, but he does. Now, in like manner, the soul was made to live on the love of God. But if a soul perverts that love by salting it with sin, then as the sailor hates the very water he drinks, so the soul hates the perverted love it seeks. Just as the sailor becomes mad because he wants water and cannot do without it, so to the soul in hell, once love, and yet that love has been refused and salted with rejection. The wicked do not want hell because they enjoy its torments. They want hell because they do not want God. Hell is eternal suicide for hating love. A second fact is this. Hell is the mind eternally mad at itself for wounding love. How often during life you said, I hate myself for doing that. And you hated yourself most when you hurt someone that you loved. Now the souls in hell hate themselves most for wounding perfect love. Just as you hurt someone whom you love. They can never forgive themselves for that. Hence, their hell is eternal. Eternal, self-imposed unforgiveness. It is not that God would not forgive them. It is rather that they will not forgive themselves. And finally, hell is submission to love under justice. We are free in this world. We can be no more forced to love God than we can be forced to love classical music or antiques. How it happens in this life very often that souls fall out of love. Many a wife is tied to a drunkard or a worthless husband until death do them part. They do not freely love one another. But they are forced, in virtue of the justice of their contract, to love one another until death do them part. And to be forced to love anyone is hell. The lost souls could have loved God freely, but they chose to rebel against that love 
and in doing so they came under divine justice, as the criminal falls from the love of country to its justice. Justice forces the souls in hell, as it were, to love God, that is, to submit to his divine order. But to be forced to love is the negation of love. That is hell. Do not think that if a soul went to heaven, it would be happy. Suppose that you hated mathematics and you had to spend your whole life with mathematicians. And that every time you picked up a newspaper, spoke to a friend, they were talking about logarithms and algebra. That would be a hell for you. Well, suppose you hated perfect life and truth and love, which is God and his revelation in Christ our Lord, and you were forced to live with perfect life and truth and love, why, that would be a hell for you, a greater hell than the one you had. Do not think that God is, is angry because he sentences us to hell. Remember this. The sun which shines on wax softens it. The sun which shines on mud hardens it. There is no difference in the sun, but only in that upon which it shines. So too, the love of God, shining on a soul that loves him, turns to heaven. And the love of God, shining on a soul that hates him, turns to hell. Hell is a place where there is no love. Could anything be worse? God love you. Hello, Radio Maria family. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen was a master communicator with an unforgettable voice and ability to communicate the message of Christianity to all peoples. He was a Catholic priest with a tremendous knowledge of Catholic theology. We've been blessed to share his recordings through the generosity of our good friends at FultonSheen.com. I would ask you to visit their website to download hundreds of MP3 talks by the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please visit them at www.FultonSheen.com and there you can enjoy the voice of the Master Preacher of Christ who touched the lives of millions worldwide with his warmth wisdom, and humor. So please visit FultonSheen.com to start enjoying your own collection of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen recordings. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, my hour has come to an end, and so... Uh, we have to say goodbye, but uh, know that uh, next week will come quicker than we think. And so I find as I'm getting older, <laughs> time is going by faster. So uh, it just seems that, uh, you know, where did that week go? <laughs> anyway, I'm sure you're, some of you are feeling the same way I am. But it's great to be here with you, and it's great to have be a part of this uh, worldwide radio apostolate uh, with Radio Maria. And so uh, please, of, of course, please pray for us and know that we will pray for you. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the good Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. 
You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.